Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The wait for vaccines to stop monkeypox in San Diego County. We may be seeing a little bit of a, of a decline here, and I, I think that would be a great thing to see. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The plan to restore San Diego's marshlands. There's been a lot of advances in our scientific understanding of the tremendous benefits of marshland and also its impact on sea level rise, which has become steadily more concerning during the course of the global warming climate change uh, studies that keep showing things are even worse than we had thought. And the new children's book, Promoting Self-Esteem. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Earlier today, the World Health Organization announced it has seen a 21% decline in monkeypox cases globally over the past week, giving hope that the current outbreak might be starting to recede. Meanwhile, San Diego's current case count stands at 239. That's according to the county's latest data. The county has also announced that this week it is distributing more doses of the monkeypox vaccines to area health care providers. Here to bring us the latest on this situation is Dr. Robert Schooley, infectious disease specialist with UC San Diego Health and professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine. Dr. Schooley, welcome. Thank you. What do you take away from the WHO announcement of a drop in monkeypox cases worldwide? Well, there's evidence that uh, things are beginning to quiet down in in the Bay Area as well. And I think a lot of this reflects the fact that uh, knowledge has spread about how the virus is being transmitted and behaviors are changing and people are getting vaccinated. And many of the same sorts of things that help slow down the early spread of HIV and the days of the early AIDS pandemic. What is the current monkeypox situation in San Diego County? Are cases here trending up or following the worldwide decrease? They're still trending up. Uh, We have about 60 more cases than a week ago, as you said, about not quite 240. But the rate of rise has been declining. Uh, And looking at some of the other indicators we have, uh, Dr. Knight's group has been looking at monkeypox DNA in the uh, wastewater in Point Loma, that's down a little bit. So we may be seeing a little bit of uh, of a decline here, and I I think that would be a great thing to see. What are you particularly concerned about uh, with the spread continuing here locally? Well, certainly uh, people who get infected can be 
very, very significantly um, impacted in terms of pain and and uh, having to stay out of work. And uh, it's quite disruptive. We haven't had any deaths in San Diego that I'm aware of. We've had about five hospitalizations. Uh, but what I really worry about is uh, the impact on people who get it. There is some concern that the virus would um, find its way into either other populations. There was a, a concern for a while that it might be finding its way into the homeless population. Uh, and so far, uh, that's been slow. There are only about uh, five cases that have been reported in the underhouse population. Then over the longer term, people are worried that monkeypox could spread into non-human populations with which we interact. In other words, pets, rodents, and other things around us. Monkeypox is not as restricted a virus as smallpox. Smallpox really only infects people. That's why we've been able to eradicate smallpox. Monkeypox can find its way into um, rodents. That's that's the natural host in Africa. Uh, there has been a report of uh, one report of a pet dog uh, that slept with uh, patients um, with monkeypox becoming infected. So we really want to try to keep the virus out of other populations while we work to vaccinate the human population and uh, kind of move it back to a future worry rather than a current concern. So the county tells us it's distributing 700 vials of the vaccine to healthcare providers in the area this week. We're told each vial contains about five doses of the vaccine. Is that going to meet demand? I doubt it. I mean, I think we're going to need to ramp it up quite a bit. There is a shortage nationwide, but that's um, beginning to catch up. I don't think we'll see an excess of vaccine for a couple of more months in terms of who really should be vaccinated. Uh, there is a vaccine trial that will be starting uh, at uh, UCSD looking at uh, the Genios vaccine, just verifying that the lower doses now being used induce the right amount of immunity. Uh, that's rolling through the Food and Drug Administration as we speak, and we'll be opening here probably in September. Uh, and we hope that in addition to the trial, that more doses will come through the health department. If someone has gotten their first dose, uh, but are unable to get a second dose because they're on a waiting list or it's just not available, what situation are they in? First dose will help. It, it doesn't, it's not as protective as, as both doses, but the first dose certainly will decrease the likelihood you'll become infected if you become exposed and will decrease the likelihood you'll have a severe infection if you get infected. People who are kind of halfway through their vaccination series should still be careful about exposures, uh, but they're partially protected. And it's a good thing to, to get whichever uh, dosing you can get to get started. Who is currently eligible to get a vaccine and how do they make an appointment? The county health department uh, has uh, will provide information about which physicians have access to the vaccine. People who've been exposed to someone with monkeypox, closely uh, intermittently exposed, should be vaccinated. Uh, as we get more access to to vaccine, men who have sex with men uh, should consider vaccination. It will protect them from uh, being exposed. But right now, it's mainly for people who've been exposed either uh, through intimate contact or through occupational risk. Are we seeing a drop in cases nationally, or is the decline coming from other countries? I think we're seeing, we're up to about, uh, about 16,000 cases nationally, so the number of cases nationally is still rising, but the rate of rise uh, is declining. I think we are going to see a tapering off of cases uh, over the next uh, several weeks to months, uh, uh, we'll still see new cases. We won't be in a situation where there are no new cases. 
Uh, but the rate of rise that we're seeing, I think, is beginning to temper, which is really very, very positive to see. The name monkeypox comes because it originated in monkeys? No, it's really kind of a misnomer. It, its uh, natural host uh, is uh, mainly rodents, uh, and it had been uh, primarily restricted in two regions of Africa, West Africa and, and uh, the Congo. The first case, case that was described happened to be in a monkey that had been transported from Africa to Germany. And so it was deemed monkeypox. But in fact, uh, this virus is much less restricted than many others and can grow in monkeys and humans and dogs and cats and rodents, but lives mostly in rodents. You know, monkeypox is clearly not the best descriptor for it. Any additional steps you would like to tell us we should take, perhaps, to stop the spread? No, I think just be careful uh, sexually right now. Uh, vaccines are coming, and after the vaccines are out, it'll be a lot safer. Um, I think restricting uh, numbers of partners uh, is really one of the things that has made a big, big difference, and it's something that we should all be extremely happy about and uh, uh, be, uh, should also commend uh, the community for uh, getting on top of it and taking charge of uh, getting this under control. I have been speaking with Dr. Robert Schooley, infectious disease expert with UC San Diego Health and professor of UC San Diego's School of Medicine. Doctor, thank you. Thank you. Today, the California Air Resources Board is voting on a plan to ease the state away from sales of new gas-powered vehicles. It's all part of state and local efforts to combat climate change. Recently, the city of San Diego unveiled an updated climate action plan, and among the initiatives is a program that lets nature help get us to zero carbon emissions. The plan involves restoring 700 acres of wetlands along the coast. Environmentalists say the wetlands will help San Diego cope with sea level rise and actually help reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the air. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, marshland restoration wasn't a big part of the first climate action plan. So why is it so prominent in this updated version? Well, from what they tell me, there's been a lot of advances in our scientific understanding of the, the tremendous benefits of uh, marshland, uh, how it can soak up carbon. Uh, they call it carbon sequestration uh, and also its impact on sea level rise, which has become steadily more concerning during the course of the you know, global warming climate change uh, studies that keep showing things are even worse than we had thought. Yeah, what does it mean that wetlands restoration is carbon negative? Uh, it means that the wetlands actually take carbon out of the air. They actually soak it up and store it and keep it out of the atmosphere, which uh, slows down the global warming and the climate change that everyone's trying to prevent. And now scientists have been able to determine about how much carbon the wetlands actually store? Uh, I, I don't have those numbers, but they have been able to. And it's a, it's a new kind of science where they're making discoveries every day. And, and as I, as you pointed out earlier, the city's first climate action plan seven years ago didn't even mention this as a strategy. So in just seven short years... Uh, you know, our understanding as a society and a scientific community has dramatically increased about this uh, this impact. What kind of impact do marshlands have on mitigating sea level rise? Well, they act as a sponge. So um, the, the the sea level rise is is mitigated somewhat because instead of uh, going right into like a housing development, the marshland can can soak it up. 
another benefit just financially is that if you have marshland along the coast, uh, if it gets destroyed, it's easier to replace uh, than actually a housing development. So it's, it's a double win. When we say restoring marshland, do we mean that there used to be a lot more marshland along San Diego's coast? Yeah, if you were in San Diego in the 1930s and 40s, Mission Bay was basically one giant marsh. There's a little chunk of it left. It's called the Kendall Frost Marsh over by Crown Point. It's about 40 acres. But the entire rest of Mission Bay was turned into, you know, the recreational uh, hotbed and, and, you know, giant aquatic park that we all enjoy. But the way they did that, it was basically every part of Mission Bay was sort of half water, half land. And, and uh, humans decided that we knew better and we made it either all sturdy land or all water. Uh, and, and so we, we half and half, uh, and we got rid of the marshland and we learned now scientifically that that was probably a mistake in, in numerous ways. Now, wasn't the city already committed to restoring some marshland in Mission Bay? Yes, there's a, a mobile home park called the De Anza Mobile Home Park that's in the northeast corner of Mission Bay. And after lots of legal problems for 20 years, that finally became available uh, to the city. Uh, and they're going to use that and some nearby area to create uh, marshland there. Initially, they were proposing maybe 100 acres. The most recent proposal Mayor Tagloria came out with this past winter was 220 acres. But again, this new climate action plan proposes 700 acres, which is more than triple that 220. So a lot of people were kind of surprised. 700 is a big number. And there's sort of some question about where the other 480 acres are going to come from. Well, that's what I was just going to ask you. Where are they going to come from? Uh, well, no one knows for sure. The city's plan doesn't specify that. The city's uh, supposedly by next winter there will be an implementation plan for the climate action plan. Uh, so maybe we'll know better in coming months. But right now there are some obvious choices. Uh, the Los Penasquitos area in, in Torrey Pines uh, State Reserve that is a right to be wetlands restoration. And there are other parts of Mission Bay, parts near Fiesta Island, uh, Cudahy Creek, which is near Tecolote Canyon. So some, some places that, that were wetlands and could be restored to wetlands. And how do you go about restoring wetlands and marshland? What kind of effort is involved? Yeah, you basically recreate it. And, I, and I'm not an expert about the specifics, but you basically, if you were just like creating a golf course, you create a landscape terrain that is wetlands. Uh, apparently, it's extremely expensive, expensive but... Luckily, there's lots of state and federal grants available. And of course, we know we have new federal climate legislation that just got approved. So uh, I don't think the city will be totally on the hook for, for the bills to make this happen. Is there any sort of uh, estimated price tag on this yet? I've, I've always just been told tens of millions of dollars. That's for the 220 acres in the northeast corner of Mission Bay. So I guess if you're looking at 700 acres, I guess it would be tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. Now, there seems to be some concern among environmentalists that the city will need to be pressured to actually carry out this commitment to restore marshland. Why is that? Well, I think it's easy to put a plan on paper, but the city has had a history uh, you know, of not maybe following through on the climate action plan from 2015 as thoroughly and aggressively and ardently as some environmentalists would like. And this one seems particularly, I guess, difficult because it's 700 acres and we don't even know where they would be. So if you're looking at all of the things that the city is proposing in the, the latest version of the climate action plan, this seems like maybe the one that would be the easiest for them to sort of mess up on and slow down on because it's just it's such a hard one and it's where are these going to be so i think environmentalists feel like this is one they really need to hold the, the city's feet to the fire on i've been speaking with san diego union tribune reporter david garrick and david thank you thanks hi 
I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Heineman. Last week, we brought you an investigation into the U.S. Forest Service that found a stalled project could have helped protect the town of Grizzly Flats in Northern California from the Caldor Fire. Most of the town was reduced to ash. Today, we head to Big Bear in the San Bernardino Mountains, where officials are hoping to avoid that same fate. KCRW's Kaylee Wells reports. It was supposed to be a prescribed burn day in the San Bernardino National Forest. Forest Service burn boss Christina Barba was supposed to be setting a planned fire to help clear out flammable brush, but she had to call it off. The weather made it too risky for her limited team. And therein lies the paradox of being a burn boss. It's like you want to burn enough that it is meaningful and you're improving large parts of the landscape, but then are we ever going to have the resources to do it? Barbara says she should be burning 3,000 acres a year to protect the community. Last year, she burned only 300, and this year, she's burned just 20 acres. She says there's a saying in her line of work. You could always find a reason not to burn. (laughs) Sorry, there's my cynicism again, I don't know. The Forest Service isn't even close to completing its list of goals. They've approved work on just under 9,000 acres near town. That's on top of two major projects that have been proposed in the past decade, then delayed, then canceled. The list of obstacles to getting the work done might be even longer. Let's start with the biggest one, climate change. Yeah, it's going to get hotter, but it also gets drier. And the window of opportunity shrinks smaller and smaller. Barba had only 13 safe burn days last year, but most of those days she still couldn't set a fire. Which brings us to problem number two, air quality. We share an air basin with Los Angeles and the entire Inland Empire. So because the Inland Empire has ozone or some days they have more particulates than they should, it shuts down burning in the entire basin. The air might be clear up in Big Bear, but Barba says she lost five of her 13 burn days because of air pollution. That's like 40% of your burn days. Yeah, it's, you know, we're doing the best we can. (laughs) Which brings us to obstacle three, resources. Some days, she doesn't have the people or equipment to burn safely. There's been times where I've woken up in the morning, I've had my organization, and then I get a call from the fire management official like, oh, you know, three of your engines got sent on a strike team to the Cleveland for a fire, and then that is the end of that. And even on a perfect day, when the weather is right and the air is clear and the firefighters have nothing better to do, prescribed fires still burn up money. The San Bernardino National Forest did not disclose their budget after months and multiple requests. Barba wouldn't give us a number either. I think my house is worth more than the the Phil's budget this year, so 
U.S. Forest Service Chief Randy Moore recognizes the status quo in Southern California's forests just isn't working. Budget and keep boots on the ground has been a big issue. We don't have a lot of prescribed burning there, particularly down in Southern California. Uh, we never have, and that's been the problem. Big Bear Lake's Mayor Rick Herrick says for the most part, residents are on board with prescribed burns. But... Boy, it seems like it just takes an awful long time. And I couldn't tell you how long it takes, but... but um, we're going back years and years and saying we have to we have to thin the forest. With only a month left in the summer, it looks like Northern California may be spared another devastating wildfire season. But in Southern California, the worst fires typically spark in the fall, meaning Big Bear's riskiest days are still ahead. And we're going to have to be very vigilant when that uh, if we have a fire during those periods of time. Fingers crossed. We've been very lucky. Let's uh, keep our fingers crossed and make sure that uh, we stay lucky. I'm Kaylee Wells in Big Bear. More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's right now. According to the Alzheimer's Association, that number is expected to more than double by 2050 if a cure or effective treatment is not discovered. The COVID pandemic only increased the number of people diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia. They are concerning statistics for sure, and they raise lots of questions. Tonight, some of those questions will be addressed at a special research town hall meeting in Mission Valley, hosted by the Alzheimer's Association of San Diego Imperial County Chapter. Dr. Claire Sexton is the guest speaker and senior director of scientific programs and outreach for the Alzheimer's Association. She joins us now to get a head start on the questions so many of us have. Dr. Sexton, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me. So there have been several studies over the last couple of years looking at the links between long COVID and dementia. What do we know about those connections? COVID has had such a wide range and impact on us with, you know, 5 million cases worldwide. And there's research going on into both, you know, what are the direct effects of the virus on the brain, but also what have been the indirect effects of COVID policies, you know, which in many cases have resulted in, you know, social isolation and significant changes to people's lives. So there's a lot of research going on investigating both of those angles and links with uh, cognitive decline and dementia. And is it the same dementia that you typically see among older people? One thing that is being looked at is, you know, this kind of changes in cognition post-COVID that some people are reporting, which, you know, is just changes in their cognition, not necessarily a diagnosis of dementia. And researchers are looking at, you know, what are the predictors of that? So there was a study in Argentina that looked to see that the loss of the sense of smell might be a predictor of cognitive and functional impairment one year after post-COVID. So these studies are emerging now and there'll be more data coming out as well. Is it possible to know at this point if the connection between COVID and Alzheimer's is permanent or temporary? No. So we still need to have more data coming out. You know, it's still relatively recent, you know, COVID in the past couple of years. So we still need more long term studies then. And the association is supporting that work, you know, leading a consortium of studies in many countries worldwide to be looking at these both short and long term links. COVID is still with us, doctor. Why might it be that a COVID infection raises the risk for neurological conditions? 
There's many theories, and one of them is around inflammation. So a COVID infection then is associated with inflammation, and this can have knock-on effects in the brain. So that's one of the pathways which is under investigation. We understand that eating highly processed foods raises your chances of getting dementia. Does that mean eating junk food contributes to that? Examples of these types of food include, you know, sodas, sugary breakfast cereals, potato chips, uh, frozen pizzas. So foods that are really commonly eaten and part of our diets. So overall links between our diet and cognitive decline and dementia and, you know, the opportunities that are to be uh, looking at our lifestyles and uh, seeing what we can be doing to help reduce our risk. There also seems to be a connection between certain types of pregnancies and dementia. Tell us more about that. Yes, so known risk factor for for dementia is uh, hypertension. And then there's been more work which has come out this year at our annual conference, the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, which was held right here in San Diego. And between hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And these are, you know, relatively common. They affect up to one in seven pregnancies. And there was research then linking gestational hypertension, so the development of hypertension during pregnancy, to increased risk of vascular dementia in particular. So again, this is then identifying risk factors, which then can be managed and offer opportunities for risk reduction. So tonight's event is a research town hall. Uh, What can attendees take away from the event? Yes. So then I'll be summarizing some of the key take homes from the Alzheimer's Association International Conference that we just hosted. So then this chimes to some of the many stories that we've been covering, but also looking at what opportunities that are for earlier and more accurate diagnosis, what, what treatments are in the pipeline, and also you know, what other factors are associated with risk for dementia and what can we be doing in our lives. There was also a study focusing on sports injuries and dementia. It revealed something interesting. Tell us. Yeah, so then this study was um, a study conducted out of Boston University, and it was uh, a post-mortem study of over 600 uh, former American football players. So the average age of death there was just under 60 years old, so, you know, really quite young. And when they died, nearly 70% of these players had, you know, a marked type of brain degeneration called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the researchers knew quite a lot about these players. So they knew, you know, the number of years they played football, the level they they played, whether it was youth or high school or professional, they knew their position. And, you know, with those details, then they estimated, you know, the number of hits that they would have received across the course of their career, and also the intensity and the force of those hits. And they found that then it was really in particular, the intensity of head impacts in football that was a better predictor of this type of brain degeneration. So again, you know, these results need to be replicated and validated, but again, offering up what increases risk and then for us to understand who is at most risk and then how can we intervene to minimize risk. As we mentioned, the number of diagnosed cases is only going to continue to multiply. What are the next steps in research that could lead us to a cure? So there's research really going on from so many angles regarding risk reduction, you know, looking at diet, exercise, uh, role of vascular factors as well uh, as other fact, uh, other many other factors, and then also into new treatments. And it's not that there's only one line of investigation for new treatment, but new treatments, but there's many different avenues which are under investigation. It's really, you know, such an active time for Alzheimer's and dementia research, and uh, we'll be seeing results of studies published in the next 
uh, 18 months. So I'd recommend listeners to be downloading our Science Hub app, which is a free app and can keep people updated with some of the latest findings. I've been speaking with Dr. Claire Sexton, Senior Director of Scientific Programs and Outreach for the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Tonight's Research Town Hall Forum on Alzheimer's will be held at the Henderley Hotel in Mission Valley starting at 5.30 p.m. Dogs who've lived in cages, who've never had a home, who've never stepped on grass. Dozens of dogs like that are headed to San Diego, part of a total of 4,000 beagles taken in the largest animal rescue operation ever in the U.S. An animal research breeding facility in Virginia agreed to release the dogs as part of a deal to settle a lawsuit which alleged multiple welfare violations. The mass rescue of these beagles has opened up discussion once again about the ethics of animal research and whether computer models or other technology might take the place of experimentation on animals. Joining me is San Diego Humane Society President and CEO, Dr. Gary Weitzman. And Gary, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Maureen. It's always so great to talk with you. Hasn't San Diego already received some of the dogs rescued from this facility? Yeah, I believe a few weeks ago, Helen Woodward uh, brought in uh, about 40 of the dogs. And so that was the first group that came into San Diego. And we're going to be bringing in about 110 of them um, next next week. So that's we're really looking forward to that. We've been waiting to get room here at the shelter to bring animals in. We've been so, so full of dogs this summer. We haven't had a space anywhere. What's the procedure involved in receiving these dogs and getting them ready for adoption? Yeah, good question. You know, the um, the first part of it is getting them here. And that's where the difficulty mostly ar uh, arises for us because we can't truck these dogs out from Virginia to San Diego. It's just too long a drive for them. So the, the real problem was getting a flight, getting a plane that actually could deliver these dogs. And we partner with a group called Greater Good Charities, and they are so generous. And they are flying so many of these beagles out from Virginia, and they're going to land right at Gillespie Field um, on August 31st. And we're going to bring them all over to our El, El Cajon shelter. And that's where the processing that you're asking about starts. And it really, it, it's basically the beginning of it is just checking them all in, getting them all set up for uh, veterinarians to examine them, getting our behavior people to take a look after that, making sure they have all their required vaccines and any preventatives that they need uh, medically, and then really getting them all lined up to transfer them to rescue groups if they want to bring any of them back with them. And some of our San Diego Animal Welfare Coalition partners here will also be taking a few. So it's going to be a very, very busy day on the 31st, but I can't wait. Now, some of the people fostering these dogs say they, the dogs don't know what grass is. Are there any other simple things these dogs have to get used to? They don't know anything about a house. They don't know anything about a yard. They don't know anything about a dog park. And the really saddest part of all of this is that the reason it's all beagles is because beagles are the most generous dogs in the canine world. They love people, they're docile, they're easy to work with, they're friendly and they're forgiving. And we're gonna show them, we're gonna show them what a dog park is, what a dog beach is, uh, what the love of a family can be, and carpeting and stairs and all the things that they're gonna need to know uh, to get into homes. 
Now, besides the inhumane conditions these dogs were subjected to, another criticism about this kind of research is often that perfectly healthy dogs are euthanized after the research is conducted. Why is that? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that is the only thing that that one of these companies can do. There's a, a related company actually um, that actually owns Invigo, which is the company in Virginia. They have just finished a, a research study that was commissioned from a group right here in Sorrento Valley. The research was being done in Ohio. And it was about 80 beagles. And we tried with Humane Society of the United States to get them to not euthanize these dogs. But the reason they did go ahead and do it uh, for a large number of them, the reason that they do is that they've already had chemicals in them. They're not set up to actually transfer the animals. And they, you know, for the most part, it's just simply not knowing how to do it. And we want to change that. In California, we're looking at legislation to make sure that animals must be transferred to a home after research is done with them. Now, animal research, uh, you know, has helped the development of medical treatments and devices that have saved thousands and thousands of lives. But there are people who say that technology makes it no longer needed in the 21st century. What's your opinion on that? There has to be a committee that ensures that the animal research is necessary. The problem is, it's going to take us a while for those committees to really consider adequately the number of alternatives there are to using live animals for research. But there's so much that we can do now without doing this to animals, and not just beagles, rats and mice and anything else. It's not about valuing an animal's life over humans. It's just about the simple, pragmatic solution, a humane solution to actually use an alternative source every single time it's possible instead of sacrificing an animal's life. And that's all that we ask. Now, you mentioned, of course, that beagles are very docile. They love people. Is there anything else that someone considering adoption should be aware of? In other words, uh, perhaps are they big barkers? Do they need a lot of attention? (laughs) what, What are the other characteristics of the breed? You just answered your own question. I know you know the answer to that before you even asked me. Yes, beagles are notorious for being the howlers of the canine world. You know, among with other hounds, of course, they they use their mouths a lot. So beagles are barkers, and you know they they can howl, um, they can hear a siren, and they can want to replicate that noise in your home. But you know, in my experience with beagles, is they're they're not any more noisy than any other dog. Really, they can howl, but shoot, I, I've got a German Shepherd pup, and she's well, she's two years old now, but she's always a pup for me. She's the biggest barking crazy girl I've ever had. And she can outbark a beagle, uh, you know, 10 times, you know, in to one. But beagles do. They, they do bark. They, they, can be, they can be very vocal. Um, and they do require a lot of attention because they're so attached to people. But honestly, I don't think they require anything more than any other dog and all the things we ask in this partnership we have with animals to take care of them is to give them attention and let them exhibit their normal behaviors. And beagles, I think, are one of the easiest dogs that we could possibly ask that of. If someone listening to this is saying right now, boy, I want to adopt one of those dogs, what should they do right now? 
Yeah, please consider it. Well, first of all, they should go online and look up a few things about the Eagles. Just so that we ask that of anybody with any breed, just take a look to know what to expect. You know, know how much exercise you'll need to do what the maintenance, what the husbandry will be like. You don't have to do a lot of grooming. Uh, you probably have to watch those ears, you know, and make sure you know how to clean ears and talk to your vet about that. Uh, take care of the nails, but they're pretty easy overall. But I say start online and take a look at what beagles require and then come and look at them when we have them up for adoption. It's going to take us probably about a week or so to get them all set to go for up for adoptions because when we get them, we're going to get them vaccinated. We're going to get them cleaned up. We're going to look at them behaviorally and then we're going to spay and neuter them. So it'll take us till probably the week after to get them into homes. But yeah, take a look online, uh, talk to your friends. Uh, but you know, beagles are awesome dogs. That's why our very own, you know, Charles Schultz here in California made it made the beagle America's dog with Snoopy. They're a great dog. I have been speaking with San Diego Humane Society President and CEO, Dr. Gary Weitzman. Thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure, Maureen. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. What kind of person do I want to be? It's a question that every child will find themselves asking at some point. It's a delicate balance for most parents to steer their child in the right direction while also giving them the freedom to be who they are. Add in a child's own curiosity and self-discovery as they grow more aware of the world around them. A new children's book by San Diego author Matt De La Pena explores all of this with a core message. Their future is being written every day. And he joins us now with more on his latest book, Patchwork. Matt, welcome to Midday Edition. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Matt, let's start with you telling us about the title of this book. Why Patchwork? Well, there are two things. Each individual, child, but also adult, I think is a collection of things in your past, you know, memories, significant family members or friends the community that you're raised in. So all of these experiences over time kind of make up who we are as a, say, a 10th grader or an adult down the line. But the title also refers to kind of the bigger picture, which is that all of these individuals kind of fit into the patchwork of humanity. So all of us are telling stories with our lives, but our stories don't exist on their own. They're a collective. Tell me, what was your inspiration for the core message that you're directing to readers? Well, I think the, the initial image I had in mind is the way I was raised, which was in kind of a machismo mentality of like, if you're a boy, you know, you play sports, you don't cry, you're tough. Um, if something hurts you, you just kind of shove it away. And so I was 
thinking a lot about that. And now that I've become a writer, and one of the things I'm most interested in as a writer is what makes you feel things on the inside, what makes you feel emotion. So I thought, how did I go from that athletic kid who sort of played by the code of machismo to being somebody who's interested in writing about emotions? So I, I think most writers, we don't set out to like deliver a message. It's more that we're exploring something that we don't quite understand or we're asking a, an interesting question. Your co-illustrator has received a lot of praise for the way her art style complements your writing. How did you connect for this collaboration? So Karina Lukin is an illustrator I've long admired. She lives up in Washington State now, but she's actually from San Diego too. She did a book called The Book of Mistakes, a picture book that I greatly admired. And I really wanted to work with her. So we got connected. We have the same agent who also lives in San Diego. So a lot of San Diego connections there. But what she brought to the book is this incredible sort of metaphor with color. So each child, originally they see themselves in one color, kind of like a basic color. In the first vignette, it's blue. But then over time, as the child evolves, she complicates that color and she adds in pink and then ultimately brown. So each vignette, she underscores what's happening in the text with this complication of color, which is just really exciting. Let's talk about your writing. What is your style? It's very lyrical and evocative. How do you write? And I also want to know, where do you do your best writing? Oh, good question. So I lived in Brooklyn for 15 years and I wrote all my books there until the last two. Moved back to San Diego, where I live now. It was right before the pandemic. So now I kind of had to write from home. I didn't have an office anymore. So I was writing at home. And to describe my style, I would say this. You know, when I write a picture book, I try to get two things right. First of all, the story, but then second of all, the music. And to me, the music is just as important as, as the story. This is the kind of text that's going to be read, hopefully, again and again. You know, this could be a child reading to themselves, but often it's a parent reading to a child or a teacher reading to a classroom. So I want the musicality to live up to the story. And, and also one more thing I would add about that is all my writing, whether I'm writing a novel or a picture book, sometimes I don't even know if I'm making things up or just plagiarizing the world because these are just voices that I've been surrounded by my whole life, you know, growing up in National City and then Cardiff by the Sea, moving to New York City, Brooklyn. You know, I just hear the voices of the subway or the streets and I try to integrate that as much as I can into my texts. You write a lot about how children can grow and develop in ways that they might not expect. How much of that does come from your own childhood? Well, it comes from my own childhood, of course, but now I'm a parent and I'm watching this firsthand. And, you know, not too long ago, I was in a conversation with a few parents and they were all talking about their children and how these are second graders, but they hadn't found their quote unquote thing yet. And that made me really kind of wonder, why is it that we as parents are in such a hurry to define our children? And once we do define our children, what does that do to our children? Does that really change the way they see themselves? And, and I really do think, of course, I do this too to my kids. Um, my daughter, she's eight years old and she is a really big reader. And I, I think because I'm an author, I'm very excited about this. So I often mention this early on in a conversation when my kids come up. But I wonder how much am I influencing how she thinks of herself? And isn't childhood really a stage of exploration and play? Shouldn't this be when we can make mistakes 
when the stakes are low. So I'm trying to like think about this as both a writer and a parent, trying to be a gardener with my children and less of a contractor. In other words, there's no blueprint that I'm just building my child out to be. I'm just sort of tending who they are and how they're growing and trying to work with that. Let's continue that thought. Emotional and physical growth can be really tough for a child. How do you approach this in patchwork? You know, this is an exciting question because this is something at the forefront of my mind right now as a book creator. I started off writing exclusively novels, but now I'm writing more and more picture books. And I, and I often wonder, what is the job of the writer for the very young? Is it to tell the truth or preserve innocence? And I think, you know, each writer makes their own call. I tend to want to lean toward the truth. But if I'm going to do that, I have to do it in a way where a child who isn't ready for that truth, especially if it's a hard truth, then they can enter the story at some other point. So patchwork, if you really get deep down into it, it's a pretty complex idea of the fact that, you know, we should not be defined by a single thing. We're more complicated than that. But a child who's not ready to think on that level, hopefully will just get caught up in each vignette and, and the colors. So I think as a book creator, I try to have multiple levels that a child can enter in because that makes for a more uh, inclusive book. What a powerful statement. Tell the truth or preserve innocence. I love that. Why is it so important to teach children about acceptance, starting with accepting themselves exactly as they are? At first, one of my, my initial ideas was like, I want to bring everybody into a book like this. One of my more recent books is called Love, and it's a picture book. And it, you know, this is a book called Love, and this is a concept that no one person owns, right? So I wanted to bring everybody in. So I didn't want just one main character. I wanted multiple main characters. So inclusivity. Now, often people will immediately think, well, he's talking about racial inclusivity. And I am, but I'm also talking about ideological inclusivity. You know, here I'm living on the coast, and you might assume a certain political belief system that I'm that I have but I've also done events in the middle of the country where maybe the politics are slightly different from mine but if you love your 8-year-old daughter the way I love my 8-year-old daughter then I can have a conversation with you so I want to have political inclusivity as much as I can so I want to bring everyone in and I hope that that's a good formula for a kid just seeing themselves in a book cuz that's a powerful thing the book deals with themes like affirmation and empathy. Is this book educational for parents too? Yeah, that's interesting. I think, you know, often we think of picture books and we think of six, seven, eight-year-olds, second graders, third graders. But the truth is when you write a picture book, you do have two audiences. You have the child, but you also have the parent that might be reading to that child or the teacher who might be sharing that book with the class. So I actually think picture books are not just for kids. I think they're for humans. I speak at colleges, um, I speak at high schools, middle schools, elementary schools. I always read a picture book everywhere I go. The only difference is if I'm reading with an older audience, we have a different conversation. If I'm reading to a younger audience, maybe it's going to be, you know, we're going to hit more of the surface area of the book. At the end of the day, a book is just a tool for conversation. And so I, I kind of think about that every time I meet a new audience. I've been speaking with Matt De La Pena, author of the new book, Patchwork, along with co-illustrator Karina Lucan. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for, for letting me be on your show.
Matt DeLabena will host a book signing event at the La Jolla Ryford Library this Friday at 10 a.m. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.